Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. I saw that a Ruby on Rails project launched a thing called Hotwire. It's a live view-like project for pushing HTML to the client. It's more like an approach reading through it, but I saw that it uses TurboLinks, which is now called Turbo, and then Stimulus, which is like a really lightweight JavaScript library, kind of like Alpine, but different for just doing little JavaScript client interactions. And speaking of LiveView-inspired approaches like Hotwire and LiveWire, Chris McCord, I think, expressed it well. He says that I've always pitched LiveView as an alternative and simpler programming model for scenarios where you need to talk to the server anyway. And in such cases, your client and server are necessarily coupled and there are N layers of complexity to achieve your goals. Things like JSON, GraphQL requests, routers, controllers, data serializers, localization, all very complex to solve in the client solution. And LiveView and these other solutions like Hotwire and LiveWire now allows us to avoid these entirely, not because JavaScript is bad, but because we can remove all these layers entirely and achieve better performance by doing so. So I'd like to congratulate Hotwire. This is a time of celebration. The Rails community is seeing the business value of this kind of programming model. They've got a great solution out there now. One of the cool things about it that I see is that it's a progressive stack, right? You can progressively enhance your app with Hotwire. So that's pretty nice. Yeah, I saw that Louis Pilfold said something about Hotwire on Twitter. He said, one thing I find appealing about Hotwire from Hey over LiveView is that it's largely backend technology agnostic. Gleam can use LiveView and we can port it to pure Gleam, but there's a bunch of work involved in both. Meanwhile, I added Hotwire to my Gleam app in minutes. Yeah, so that's nice. Rails community has been pretty good about that, about that kind of stuff, about making it uh, pluggable, you know. Um, but yeah, LiveView is pretty pretty intermingled with the back end and the front end. I think it'll be good. I think it's going to be fantastic for the Ruby community. And, you know, just comparing features to features, though, like LiveView, I think still really knocks it out of the park. Efficiency-wise, speed-wise, you, you can't beat, you know, the Erlang concurrency, you know, at model. Like, it'll, it'll be good. Oh, and then since we're talking about Ruby, might as well mention Ruby 3.0 is also out, too. Just released it. And an interesting part in there for us uh, Erlangers and Elixirists, Ruby 3 has the Ractor, R actor, Ruby actor model in it. So pretty interesting. We'll see how Ruby grows with that and how, how it leverages uh, the Ractor model. Um, that, by the way, the Ractor model is their new concurrency model, right? So that's, this solves a lot of uh, crit criticisms that Ruby uh, has had over the years. So we'll see how that goes. And especially for things like Hotwire. Uh, since we're talking about Hotwire and LiveView, there's another huge project um, that's also seeing the business value of removing layers and consolidating business logic. You might have heard of React. React has explained and demoed a new concept called React Server Components. It's a, it's a new programming model uh, for them where the components are rendered server-side. And this has some limitations, but you know what, what doesn't have trade-offs when you make, um, make new things like this? The idea is that these server components, you know, can't use React effects or have state in them, right? They are actually stateless on the server side, but they do have access to the database to produce the components, you know, kind of like a server would render HTML. And when that backend and React server side produce HTML, it would send all of that up to the client side React, right? And the client side React would have all the state and such. 
pretty cool. <laughs> it's it's a big week actually in the in the in the realm of you know server side rendering and and how to how to consolidate business logic. So I'm I'm really happy that all these communities larger than ours really are seeing the business value now and 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 starting to make their way towards uh, uh, getting solutions here. Comparing LiveView where the connection is stateful, right? LiveView has a stateful connection and the state exists on the server. React server components have stateless servers and the state exists on the client. So really the, the similarity between LiveView and React server components is that now you can write your templates once and render them twice, right? Once by the server on the initial request and again in the client side. Got some links to the uh, YouTube video where they explain this uh, a lot better than us probably, <laughs> but it's very interesting stuff and, and congrats to React. Time of celebration. I love that everyone is starting to see this stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm interested to see where the where it goes. It's still pretty early, right? They said that it's not, they're just kind of announcing what they're working on. It's not quite out for use, right? Right. Yeah. RFC. Um, but they have a, a, a demo that you can clone and play with. So they've got something out there, but yeah, maybe not 1.0 yet. That's cool. Uh, moving on to the nerves world, a GitHub user named Kentaro created a project called Mix Tasks Upload Hot Swap. It adds a mix task named mixupload.hotswap, which deploys local code changes to remote nodes and applies them without rebooting the whole application. This helps with faster feedback when deploying IoT projects on devices with nerves. It's much faster than mix firmware and mix upload. So that's cool if you're working on nerve stuff. Yeah, and, and related to that, it looks like Connor Rigby is uh, working on a similar concept, but maybe for more generic Elixir apps, just with you know hot code swapping and distributed nodes and all that. So interesting. I'm I'm not actually sure if he's working on that exact project or some or something that just is solving a similar problem. So pretty cool. We'll we'll get to see a little bit more hot swapping here soon. I think. <laughs> yeah. And hey, if you're using Open, uh, the Open Pro website got a major update. It helps highlight uh, what you get from the free version and what additional features you get from the Pro version. Also, up next is our interview with Parker about Open, so stay tuned. Also, we saw that uh, Voitech Mock created an example Phoenix app with one-click deployments to different cloud services. It currently shows how to deploy to Heroku, DigitalOcean, and Render. He's asking for more contributions to help newer people get into Elixir and get their applications quickly deployed to different cloud platforms. And I like that idea because, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm always hearing about deploying being somewhat of a difficult thing. So it's always nice to have a good example. I remember when it was a lot a lot harder to get Elixir um, projects deployed somewhere, but I haven't had that issue. It's come a long ways. Yeah, like it's it's so much better. I'm really happy with where we're at now. Um, but yeah, pretty cool. One click deploys can't get easier than that. Last up in the news, uh, there's a new maze generator created by Angelica Tiberska. Sorry if I butchered your name. Uh, it's for really really cool. Uh, it uses Live View underneath. If you have kids that like mazes, they can have some fun generating them and printing them out. Uh, it includes a feature for rendering the solution path as well. Uh, you can upload uh, images to create the shape of the of the maze. It has a uh, different templates in there too, like hearts and stars and such. It's pretty pretty cool, pretty fascinating. So really loved it, and it's based on a book, Mazes for Programmers by Jameis Buck. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I clicked around and it. it's it's pretty fun. I'm sure my kids will love it. And that's it for the news. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Parker Selbert. Parker is a longtime member and contributor in the Elixir space, and we're really happy to have him on. So, Parker, welcome to the show. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So Parker, we're going to be talking about uh, a library that you have and you offer uh, available to the community. It's called Open and it's a job processing library. And I'm really excited to talk about that. Uh, but before we jump into that, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, like where you live and is this is Open your full-time job or what other kind of work are you doing? Normally, we live outside of Chicago, my wife and my, my kids and I. Um, currently, we live in an Airstream trailer traveling in the United States, only for a little bit to escape winter in lieu of being able to travel, you know, far and wide. Thankfully, it's 80 degrees out and not, not 20. Oban is not my full-time job. Hopefully, we can get to that point someday, but don't tell that to my employer. Uh, I currently work for D-Scout, which is a, a mobile research company in Chicago, uh, and I've been working with them for 10 years, uh, like nine years as a contractor and a, a year as an employee. So at D-Scout, are you using Elixir in that space? Like, what's that like? Yeah, we... So it's... As I mentioned, it's been around for about 10 years. It started off in, as a Rails app and then grew to be a pretty big single-page app with a Rails API backend. We ran into a lot of problems with that. And I started in Elixir in 2013, back well before it was 1.0, and had dabbled and kind of played with things and then made some other small side projects. And I started introducing Elixir there in about 2015 uh, for some small services. We had been using some pub sub type stuff that was written in Node, and that didn't really hold up very well by comparison. And so that was rewritten in Elixir, and then we never had a problem again. And so when it came time to get a new API after a lot of performance issues, we made the jump, this is about three and a half years ago, to rewrite most of the platform in Elixir um, and use GraphQL, and it's been going beautifully since then. An aspect of that is that we had been doing background jobs using in Redis using Sidekick. And so before making Oban, I ported much of the functionality of Sidekick and Sidekick Pro into a library called Kick that we used from Elixir so that we could have jobs in queued and run in Rubyland and then also in Elixir land. Nice. One of the things we have to address first, I think, is the name Oban. Like I remember when I talked to you the first time, I was pronouncing it Oban. And I think I've heard other people say it that way. So maybe you can just kind of tell us the, the correct pronunciation and where this name comes from. So it means Little Bay in Scotland. And I guess it comes from streams and where streams collect, but that's not really where it comes from. It's just a nice four-letter name that happens to be um, very popular Scotch that, that I enjoy. <laughs> and so we have so many other things, like we have absinthe. And so it seems like if you wanted kind of a, a refined project with a nice short name, whereas Absinthe is for GraphQL, you can have Oban for job processing. Uh, yeah, I guess Glenn Marenghi wouldn't wouldn't cut it, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> Lafroig doesn't really work. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that that's there. Fun fact, Oban is owned by Diageo, and uh, Diageo did not like that I owned the Oban.pro domain, which is why the new one is GetOban.pro. <laughs> there's a, there's a little bit of protection there. Although it is a town and there are plenty of other things named Oban. They they make a really good Caribbean cask up, by the way, too. It's one of my favorites by by Oban. <laughs> yeah. So Oban, Oban is the way to say it instead of Oban. I have a hard time saying it the wrong way now, although I admit at first I definitely said it with like the harder A sound. 
You mentioned Open as being a job processing library. So maybe you can kind of give us a little bit more information about, you know, what's special? How does this actually work? Like you mentioned, uh, like the Redis backed one, you know, how does Open work? Open is backed by Postgres. So it's a persistent queue, meaning that when you have certain tasks or certain jobs you want to have done, you store a record of that in a database, uh, which Open manages inserting those into the database. Um, and then pulling certain ones out based on when you want to run them or breaking them up by different queues and what the name of you know the module you want to run is, um, which are called jobs. And it facilitates pulling those out and running them and maintaining all of their, their state. It's a fairly important aspect that it's in Postgres rather than Redis. Um, initially, I looked at using Redis streams to do Open in the first place. One of the novel things about Redis streams, which are largely inspired by Kafka streams, is that unlike a regular queue or a list, like in Redis, if I push something into a list, when I pop it out, it's gone forever. And so you can do little tricks to save that somewhere else, but you don't have the original record and you don't have the timestamps that were with it. Instead of doing that with lists, with a stream, you push data into it and then you consume it, but then it stays there until you clean it up later. And so the initial inspiration for Open was this Redis stream kind of functionality. And it turns out that there are certain things that are just really hard to do that way. If you want to do retries, for example, uh, or you want to do scheduling, you have to use multiple streams. And then you're kind of defeating the purpose of putting everything in this cohesive stream. And so rather than using Redis streams, so many of the things I was running into, it became clear that Postgres, or I mean a, a relational database in general, but Postgres in particular, had great solutions for it. So we can use a table to model a stream of, of jobs. And that's how Oban handles everything internally. That's great background because I it, it makes me wonder why then Redis was chosen as like the backend technology for most of these job processing uh, libraries out there. Um, it seems like they're reinventing the wheel a lot. I think a lot of them are you know, in the Elixir community, we're a bit more adverse to pulling in other libraries than, than people are in, say, Ruby or Python or Node. But there are some changes that happened in Postgres in particular around the 9.6 days, which is several years ago now, uh, where it used to be difficult to manage concurrency. You'd have a lot of contention. So if I had three, four, however many nodes all trying to select jobs from the same table, you could get into deadlocks just due to the way it does it. And so around 9.6, they introduced, I'm going to say it wrong because I'm not looking at, at the actual select statement, but essentially lock this for update and skip anything that already has a lock. And so you get really easy, fluid pulling of jobs without ever blocking each other. For most open operation, there's only one index, which is just this compound index that lets it find, all right, I want to find jobs that are available in this particular queue that are available to run right now, and they have a priority of this and this. And you get jobs in a millisecond or less. And so it tends to be extremely fast for, for getting things out of it. It's something I didn't realize is that this is your second time around the block when it comes to creating a job processing library. Um, yeah. And since, since you chose Postgres, I have to assume that with your experience now um, building these kinds of things, like you've obviously learned the lessons that you know, that, that were problems in other libraries before. Um, so, so Postgres seems to solve a lot of those problems for you as well. What, what other kind of things did you find 
you know, that, that were easier to solve or became more robust, more reliable with, uh, with Open? There are a few top-level ones. Having transactional guarantees is just huge. To be able to use an Ecto multi and say, I want to insert this account and I want to insert this user and then I want to insert this job that's going to, uh, you know, synchronize with Stripe or, and then I want to have this other job that's going to send out an email. And you can all do that in one transaction. It's just nice to have that ability to, to flow instead of the world where you have some external library that you are going to push into and maybe your transaction hasn't committed when it goes to start running the job and so it errors the first time or you have to schedule it five seconds in the future just to compensate. So you don't have any of those problems when everything runs in the same transaction or in the same database. So in addition to transactions, having just persisted data enables some amazing things. So one is historic observation. I can tell when my job ran or when that it ran. Not only that, I can see by queue or by worker, what's the time that it's waiting. So I can see, oh, typically jobs are stuck waiting for five seconds. We probably don't have high enough concurrency. But another thing that it enables, which is one of my favorite features, is unique jobs. So if you want to go, say, the Redis route, since all the jobs are not retained forever, you can't go and look at exactly which job was there or what arguments it was ran with. So instead, you just have to have a lock around something. And at the point when, and that's based on some sort of hash that's just stored with a timeout. And at the point when the job finishes, you can't check anymore. So one of the things with Oban and unique jobs is I can say, I want this to be unique and even if something is completed. So only run this thing once for infinity or as long as we happen to retain jobs in, in the database. That does sound really powerful. Yeah. Uh, I, I've often wanted to do some sort of metrics on RAN jobs in, in the past, and I just can't do it because of the way that it's stored in Redis. That and, you know, just I'm just not at, as good at Redis <laughs> as I am at SQL, which a lot of uh, applications, you know, have a, a traditional d relational database in the back end or a, any kind of persistent database in the back end. I think that's pretty much everybody. I've written a lot of Redis. <laughs> And a lot of Lua and multiple things in Redis. And then I still forget the syntax. And it's, I want to find some job there. I have to scan through it and make a cursor. Whereas in SQL, it's all right. It's one command. Select this with this. <laughs> it's so easy. I want to uh, drill in a little bit on that point you said about Ecto Multi. Because I don't know that people necessarily appreciate what that means. Like you did say it, but I just want to kind of draw attention to it. So what it was is... The idea that, you know, I'm, I'm going through the process, maybe it's like um, a new user signup. And I'm creating records to say, okay, create an account, create, uh, you know, these entries, start to set up their account with some additional things. Oh, I want to send out a background job to say, send an email greeting, uh, you know, whatever those kinds of things are where you're wanting to spin off a background job. And then maybe they get down to a, a next step and something's totally invalid. And it just says, boom, I can't actually complete this. And an Ecto Multi automatically builds you a transaction. And you do have that problem. Like if I was writing those same job requests to do background work into Redis or into Kafka or SQS or anything else, that's an external system. And when I do my transaction rollback, that thing still exists. It'll still get pulled out and then it'll try and work on it. And the thing is not there. You know, the records that it's supposed to operate are not there. 
the idea of having it within the same database, within the same transaction is really powerful, just in terms of avoiding those kinds of problems. So I appreciate that as a developer who has had to, you know, think about and be aware of those kinds of problems. So I like that. Thank you. I love that too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I, I have like a, th- a million questions now. I want to dig in, but before we do that, I, you've, you've just laid out a great like syna- synopsis of Oban, uh, sorry, Oban, and what it does, what it does well, why Postgres. It, so, so it's a free library, but there's a paid portion uh, of it as well. So, tell us about the differences between free and paid. What's what's what would somebody want in a paid version of this? There are there are two aspects to the paid version. Um, so there's the, the OSS version, and then the other version, which we call Web Plus Pro, uh, which is really just Pro with a web UI. Um, it initially started as purely a web UI, but then these other powerful plugins and abstractions started coming up that seemed like a great way to bring people in to sponsor the project. And so that's what spawned Pro. And so the web UI is exactly what it sounds like. It's a live view powered dashboard that lets you check out jobs that are running right now and filter them based on the the node they're running in or the state that they're in. You can look at jobs that have ran. You can go in and do batch actions. Like you could search for a job that happens to be have these particular arguments. You could select all of them at the same time and cancel them. And that will stop the job as it's running. Or you can delete jobs that you don't want to have run anymore. You can go in and look at the details of exactly how long a job waited before it ran. And if it errored a few times, what are the, what are the arguments or what were the errors that, that came up? And you can link those all together. Um, so that's the website of it. And then Pro, uh, there are plugins to make certain things more open as a system behave even more reliably so that you never have an orphan job, which is if your node shuts down or something crashes, it will make sure that the job doesn't get stuck in an executing state, but gets moved back. It records metrics over time, so you can see exactly which nodes are running which jobs at particular times. And then it has some additional workers, which build on the regular open worker, and they do things like batch processing. So I can enqueue a thousand jobs, and when they all finish, or they or one of them is discarded, or a certain actions happen, it will then trigger a callback job. And then most recently, there are also uh, workflows. And so workflows let you have arbitrary relationships between jobs so that they can go in a sequence. You can fan out, you can fan in, you can say, uh, don't run this final notification job until these other five jobs have finished. Um, And it will very gracefully wait for them to finish and it doesn't do head of line blocking. um, And it resolves those all kind of automatically. And there are a couple other uh, there's a dynamic cron so that you can store or update or pause cron jobs as as they're done. Open itself ships with a what we call basic cron, but you can't start new jobs or edit them as on the fly or pause them. Okay, just to clarify, if if I were to get Open Pro, I would also get the web part of this too. Yes, they they come together. Gotcha. Parker, I, I think it's really interesting just because I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting stuff we can talk about around all of this. And I know Bytepack was a Dashbit initiative and Bytepack.io. And you know we talked about that in the news before about how Dashbit and Jose Valim specifically said, you know, we don't want to continue down this path as a business venture. And it was open source. But I know that there was some discussions with you 
about offering pro level features to an open source thing because it's kind of they're trying to, as I understand it, trying to uh, build a platform where that was possible. And you've done all of that without Bytepack existing. And I would just love to hear about some of the work that goes into making a pro feature like this available and accessible and, and actually work well. Open Web and Open Pro are done as private GitHub repos, but then they're also private packages. So Hex has organizations, which are typically used by companies so that they can host their own internal packages and then distribute those. And there's an Open Organization, which is just a private organization, which which hosts those. And the way that licensing works is that when you sign up, we make a an API key so that you as a company can access the private organization and then pull those down. So it, it turns out to be extremely easy to do. The APIs, as you would expect, are great. There's a, a nice Erlang library to work with Hex so we can refresh keys and create new ones. And that all works very seamlessly. I had initially talked to, to Jose uh, about Bytepack when they were working on it. And sort of a funny story there is that for a while, through the Elixir forum, Jose would send me little private messages. And we had gotten to the point where it was like 100 private messages in. And I responded like, you know, I'm on IRC. We can just do it there. And so within 30 seconds, I get a message on IRC saying, wait, have you been here the whole time? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for about six years now. And so it got a little easier to, to communicate at that point. But I did work with them initially at how we would offer these packages. Um, and that kind of drove some of the complexity that they realized would be inherent in Bytepack. You'd want to sell different plans with different kind of requirements and you have different packages laid on top of that. And then how do you customize receipts? And there, so there's a lot to it. Um, and it, it made sense in the end why they decided to, to pull the plug on that. For Oban's case in particular, it is much simpler because there's no special casing. It's just the one thing. It's the way it works. Yeah, I can imagine that being more challenging to try and create a general kind of like platform that can handle all these different scenarios rather than what you needed to solve your scenario. Right, yeah. I have to say, like the the Get Oban Pro, there I go again, Get Oban Pro, <laughs> the website, you, you have a, a link to a demo there. And if you haven't checked it out, you know, listeners, uh, you really ought to look at it. Like, not only is uh, the back end of this, like the core of this job processing library, like s- seemingly solid here using like transactional guarantees that Postgres provides, but the web portion of this is better than any other one that I've ever, I've ever seen. Like Knox sidekick to the curb here, EXQ, like a lot of these. And I mean this in the, in the, in the best sense possible. Like I know all of these are open source libraries, but the 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 polish on here the quality of this this web portal uh is is something to look forward to <laughs> so nice job on that by the way parker that is that is really great thanks you know speaking of how it is a, a really good experience to work with the dashboard and everything i know that the pro website you, you could even see like demos of it and it was like live view all everything and and you were doing live view very early on right it was a and I, I would just love to hear your perspective on having be a very early adopter of LiveView and what that was like. Yeah, I it was probably very early on. I knew that I wanted to do a web UI, but I also knew I really didn't want to write a React or a Vue front end, and you know, with a plug that was kind of a 
mini router thing in the back end. And this all developed around the time that LiveView had been announced. And so I was very excited to possibly use it. And so started using it well before it was available, before it was even published, when it was just on GitHub. I don't know if anybody's tried to publish a package and reference a GitHub link, but Hex won't allow it. And so I had this thing ready to go that I wanted people using. And then I would just harass Chris every week or so saying, (laughs) are you releasing this? Because you're you're holding me up. I can't get this out. But it's been amazing for just how easy it is to do some of the different features. Things like, like I mentioned before, with being, you know, selecting multiple jobs and canceling them. That's that's so little to do in live view that it's it's been amazingly powerful. There were some people who messaged me and said, you know, I'm having some compatibility issues because live view was moving very quickly and it's not even 1.0 yet. And so you'd have a breaking change of somebody's local app would run an older version of live view and then Omen might be on a, a newer one and then th- there'd be incompatibility and people would recommend you know, maybe if you did this as a SPA no, I don't think so. I think we'll hold out. We'll wait for it. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> so web is built with live view and yeah, that demo is amazing. Good job on that. And so we talked about Postgres and that's a big difference and that enables a lot of, uh, you know, better, I'd say better like ways of managing job queues. Are there any other ways that Oban compares to other job processing libraries out there? And and to make this clear too, this is not like compatible with other other existing job processing things like Sidekick. So if you're like on Sidekick right now, you can't transparently migrate to Open, right? Well, what other uh, other differences there and comparisons are there to other processing libraries? Well, you're right. You can't you can't just transparently migrate. It's in a different I mean different language, but it's also different database. Although considering that it is still just a database table. Uh, we at DScout have a very small wrapper that's just like a little active record class that just maps to a few things in Open, and we just insert jobs directly from Rails over to run them in Elixir, and it's oh, it's nice. been very easy. There are some other things that it does that other processors couldn't do. One of them is sort of an interesting case that happens on on the Open Pro website, which is that there is the public Open that runs. And that's what the demo is. And that's all faker data. So all the emails or anything in there, that's entirely fake. But then there's another one that it runs on a different schema. So in in Postgres, there's a public schema and you can have as many other schemas as you want. And so there's also for OpenPro a a private schema and anything that people, like when people sign up or we need to send emails, that all happens in the private schema. So it's running multiple versions of Open that don't conflict with each other at all. That there's a UI in the admin that I can go to to see the private stuff. And then there's also the public one. Some companies I know have five or six different instances of Open that they run. And I know of a few that run different web UIs and they have a switcher so that they can change which uh, like which prefix they're looking at or which form they're looking at. That actually leads perfectly into this question I have because I like generally using the approach of umbrella applications, partly because I'll use a separate, uh, different applications kind of as microservices where they kind of own their own data and they have the very uh, focused purpose and a small API. So part of that question is, and it sounds like you're kind of answering that, but like how well does that model where I say, oh, this little service in the umbrella would like to have its own job processing logic taken care of by Oban. How would you recommend setting up something like that? That's a really common thing for people to do. I can say even at DScout, we run an umbrella with a lot of different apps 
not in the traditional kind of like, here's our database and here's our web view, but a bit more isolated than that. And even in that case, it's very easy to run different instances of Open that just manage their own queues. So you can run as many different instances as you want on the same node um, or within the same umbrella. And you can also run the UI in something that's not running any jobs at all. So you can have Open running different queues in different parts of your umbrella and then in another app or just a different thing you mount with Docker, mount the UI and have it just use the same database and they they don't even have to be interconnected. So another question, I guess, with Open Pro, um, I was looking at the pricing and I was just wondering if you could speak to kind of helping to clear up that question of like, if I have an umbrella application where I have maybe multiple uses of Open, is that considered one application, which would be under one pricing model or is it like multiple applications? Like, how do you view that? We'd consider that just one. That's mm-hmm. one app. Yeah. Um, it, it's I guess it would be one business, right? The idea is that if, you, if you're an agency or you're some larger company that has a bunch of internal apps, that hopefully you would consider those as separate applications. One of the aspects of Open or any, any job processor is that it's private data. So it runs in your own system. Open Pro doesn't phone home. I don't know how many instances you happen to be running in production that would violate a lot of trust. So it's an honor system in a, in a way there as to whether you're solo, meaning you're just running one app and up to two servers or you're big business and you're, you know, you're really using open to drive a profitable business. So we talked about Postgres transactional integrity, you know, using Postgres um, and, you know, open pro uh, the, the UI is amazing. It leads me to think that Open could be a potentially critical part of representing event history in an application. And so I'm curious, you know, especially with with records being persisted in, in the database, and that's traditionally how a lot of like models, you know, are, you know, stored in databases too and records and all that kind of stuff. So I I'm imagining that this could really lend itself, that Open really lends itself to like an event-driven architecture. I could load up my user record and I can see all the jobs that process for that particular user. I, I don't know how easy that is, but where where do you think Oban like sits when it comes to like application architecture and contributing to a, a application architecture like if I were building something that included Oban? There are a few things there. So most there are in other ecosystems and actually even in, in Elixir there are other job processors that are based on Postgres, one thing they don't do is keep the jobs after they've ran. They just, they delete them immediately. So you can't see when it ran or any of that, you know, introspection stuff that I mentioned before. Right. And so Oban has this notion of pruning, which comes directly from the, the stream history of Kafka and what well, I guess it's called compaction there. And so you can specify exactly how long you want to keep jobs around. And that's really up to the company. You could keep jobs around for a year. Or you could do it where if a job's discarded, meaning it failed too many times, you keep it around forever and you only get rid of jobs that were intentionally canceled or completed. Um, And you keep those around for, say, a month. And you could very easily look and see by ID in the arguments, when did this job run for this user? And you could aggregate those in, in any way that you want. I know of plenty of people that use it to verify that something has ran and when it completed. But I don't know of anybody that's using it in a 
event driven kind of way where they're aggregating something at the end of it. Do you think that would be a good idea? Is that does that seem like a, a bad thing to do? I don't know if it's a bad thing to do uh, or, or a good thing to do. I know that the purpose of running a job is usually for a side effect. I could say almost always for a side effect. Right. It doesn't give you the result back. It doesn't store that result anywhere. That that would be up to you if you wanted to do it. And so compared to something else that's purely meant for event aggregation, I don't know if it would just be too much overhead to do that. But I'm not saying it's a bad idea. So one of the things I think I can imagine doing with this, like uh, with with our work projects, some of the things we end up pr- doing is a lot of, uh, you know, we're processing PDFs and things like that as part of normal operations. And I can imagine saying, oh, well, we're going to farm this off to a background job to, you know, split this PDF apart and do these different operations and and then emit from our code that's being executed PubSub events so that a live view view can say, oh, your PDF is ready, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And that's completely separate from Oban, right? And that seems to be a very compatible and happy union there. Does, is that something you see a lot? Yes, it is. Uh, it's something that I've done, that people I've worked with have done, and I know some other companies are doing. There's even a guide, actually. Um, so the main Oban docs have guides, some of which are based on recipe blog posts that I wrote a while ago. Um, and one of them is specifically about doing these kind of exports and giving progress updates as they happen. So it could be your job starts up and it then sends a PubSub notification that it's starting and then it starts pulling in these other files and you get progress events as it's doing something. And then finally, when it's finished, it lets you know, oh, this is ready. And then you just give somebody an update. There are also, from the early stages before telemetry was quite as widely adopted, Open has always used telemetry. So logs are done purely through telemetry, error reporting, instrumentation. So if you want to make your own custom logs or you want to send Prometheus histogram kind of data or anything else like that, it's all built in. There are events for pretty much everything. Node local, you can also use that for very quick event relays. I love how these things are just all all tying together makes it extremely easy and super production. I'll say I'll call it super production, super production ready. I got an interesting question for you. What's it bad at? It, it seems really good. I'm trying to find what it's not good at. There are some things that it's not good at. And some of that pertains to how state is stored in Postgres. It's difficult to store things ephemerally without creating a lot of churn because any update is really a new record. And so you want to minimize the amount of garbage that you're generating in the database. To hint at something that's underway, I don't know if anybody happens to watch the open repo, but there have not been many big changes recently. And that's because a lot of the work is going into a separate kind of hidden project, which I'm calling open SQL. And that changes the way that jobs are managed and consumed with the goal of making it so some features that have been very hard to do will be really easy to do. So some of those are global concurrency. So you could say even with a a cluster of 10, 20 nodes, you only want to run one job at any time. That will be easy to do. If you want to have a rate limiter that says, I only run 10 of these jobs per minute, that will be very easy to do. A lot of things that would be very hard to do without some sort of consensus protocol will become easy to do. Those are hard to do right now. (laughs) 
we will have to be sure to share that on the the news section when that uh, launches. And so we'd love maybe even be have you come back on and share more about that at some time in the future. I'd love that. It's I've written a lot of PLPGSQL recently, uh, which <laughs> has its good and bad sides. <laughs> so one of the questions I like to ask when people are working on projects like this, you know, is there any particular feature that you are particularly proud of in Oban? I am particularly proud of unique jobs and the way that that all works. It's something that is traditionally hard to do in other languages. It, it is easier because we have SQL. But even then, there are some other little kind of caveats that you have race conditions between transactions. Um, so if a transaction's writing something and another transaction starts, it can't see it. So there are some internal mechanisms to compute an integer based on exactly what arguments and queues and workers are involved, and then wrap each one of those inserts in a small advisory lock so that you don't have, you, you truly don't have duplicate jobs. So if you have something that's pretty critical that you want to make sure only happens once and only has one job instance in the database, it's actually possible to do. Never having tried to write my own job processing library, you know, I can just kind of only imagine some of the complexities there. I just know that, you know, just a general truth in life, as soon as you start to focus on something and kind of dig into like a new an area that's new to you, you realize, wow, there's so much more here and so much more complex than I thought. Yeah, it's amazing to do this on the beam instead of somewhere else. The things we get for free uh, or just that are made possible, they are so easy. I mean, between dynamic supervisors and tasks, telemetry itself and just how Ecto is constructed. It's made writing and working with Oban a lot more fun than doing parallelism in traditional OO languages that just don't have any of those concurrency primitives. Like thread locking and all that difficulty, yes. Sure. Well, one of the things that's, um, that's possible is that you can cancel the job that's in the middle of executing. So we've had situations where there's some export, you know, somebody enqueued something that's attempting to export gigabytes and gigabytes of data, and it repeatedly crashes some Ruby node. And uh, every time it starts back up, it comes back up and it does it again. And so we have to get in and like delete something. And in this case, you could see that it's using a lot of memory and in open in the UI or even through the console, if you wanted, you could cancel the job mid execution and it would stop and just discard it and it wouldn't try to run again. Yeah, I, I can think of like the, the challenge of doing that in like procedural languages where you don't have the ability to send messages to a running process and say, die, <laughs> you know, just kill this thing, make sure it dies in the middle of its execution. You don't have those primitives where, you know, it's like you're having to, uh, within the thread that's running, it's having to continually yield and check and say, am I, am I told to cancel yet? Am I told to cancel now? You know, it's like just such a, such a better model for doing this problem. Yes, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's very ugly to do that in other languages. Uh, another thing that Oban has um, is a worker. You can specify a timeout. Like, this should only run for 30 seconds. And after that, go ahead and kill it. And I think most people from with a Ruby background would be familiar with the idiom of um, don't use timeout. It'll just kill a thread randomly, no matter what it's doing. And it can result in a very bad state. So I'm really pleased to be working in Elixir day to day. You know, so for the listener who's uh, listening to this and they haven't used Open before and they're thinking, maybe this is something I want to check out. I want to try this out. Uh, what is the best way for someone to get started? The README, so the, the GitHub README has a nice overview of why you'd want to choose it, which I think we've talked about a lot here. 
but then also just setting it up and getting started. And then there are some nice docs and guides um, on Hexdocs that show some different use cases and get you started there too. Are there any particular resources that you would recommend for someone who says, you know, I want to go ahead and go with the pro version. I want that web interface. I want that dashboard. I want to be able to easily cancel things. What would you recommend or direct someone to with that? Go to the getopen.pro website, the newly overhauled getopen.pro website that gives you a little comparison table of here's what's in OSS and then here's what you get with Web and Pro and gives you some, some overview of exactly what those features are. And previously, in uh, kind of talking about some of this ahead of time uh, before the show, you'd mentioned that you recommend people check out the Open channel on the Elixir Slack. Uh, yes. So the, the Elixir Slack, which is pretty popular by itself, there is a small sub-channel for Open. And so I'm in there and a bunch of other smart people who follow the project or other people who um, just happen to be pro license holders are in there. So we get a lot of people asking questions, uh, a lot of bug reports there some feature requests, and then any announcements also happen there. Now, one of the things I, I have to ask while I've got you here is like, what are some of the things that you're working on for the future? You'd mentioned you have this other little project where you're working on some things, but what, what can you tell us that you have coming down the pipe? The, the stuff that's happening with the new table structure and OpenSQL, that's probably the things I'm most excited about because it will enable global concurrency and global rate limiting and things that have been very difficult to do. Even more exciting there is that the model that Oban uses in Postgres and retaining these jobs and having the central structure isn't used anywhere else or in any other ecosystems, any other languages. And the fact that Oban Web runs by itself means that you could potentially have, say, a Python library that runs Oban that you can still use the same UI for and control the Python library. Just a possibility. That's interesting. I love the idea of being able to reach out into other ecosystems and to be able to say, hey, you know, Elixir does really good at, you know, concurrency, block background processing. You know, here's something that you can use and is reliable. I think that's awesome. Yeah. The, if you have interop between languages, it, I think it helps encourage people to be even more free about having a polyglot or heterogeneous infrastructure and to start possibly migrating stuff over to Elixir with a little bit less overhead or ceremony or worry about it. Well, Parker, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and meet with us and share what, what's going on behind the scenes with Open. Because we, we see a lot of that in the community news and just that progress is being made and being aware of it. It's just really helpful to you know have you come in and help us understand a little bit more about what it's doing, what's unique, and really how it's leveraging the strengths of the beam, that it's really building on top of this incredible foundation that we have. Thank you. It's, I, I love talking about it, and it's been a pleasure to, to share and dive into a little bit more. It's a complex system with all this around it, and I have a hard time getting the info out there. So I appreciate it. Well, if people want to get uh, in touch with you or learn more, or where would you direct them to go? Uh, we mentioned before the Elixir Slack. That's a great place to go. Um, also on Twitter as Soren2, um, on the forum as Soren2. Uh, that's S-O-R-E-N-T-W-O, which might not be that obvious when you hear it. Otherwise, you can always email me. The website is Soren2.com and there's a, a contact there. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Hey. 
If you are newer to Elixir and want to get some extra practice and a more thorough understanding of pattern matching, check out my free pattern matching course at thinkingelixir.com.